Our Father, tonight as we come again to the Scripture, we ask that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts to truths that we need in order to live the Christian life today and tomorrow and forever. We know that your truths are absolute. They do not change. They're not culturally accommodated. And so we ask that you would help us break through our own uh, fleshly-induced misunderstandings and indoctrination where we have been falsely misled by the world system, that we can experience the free fellowship that is our birthright in Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. We're continuing to work through the time between the Mount Sinai and the the Grand Kingdom of Israel, all through this conquest and settlement period. And because we are probably not going to get to the next great event, which is the King David this this spring, because we're going, just going slow. It's just a lot of material here, and I, this, we're going fast as it is, and I don't want to go any, any faster. So um, we're going to probably finish this spring with this chapter that we're now on. It's going to take quite a while to go through. And so, therefore, I'm going to take time at the beginning of classes from now on just to throw up some review questions because most of you have come faithfully to the Thursday night class and are um, by now, hopefully, um, able to handle uh, some of these questions that are thrown our way and questions which deep down in our hearts we all struggle with in the day-to-day living out of the Christian life. So tonight's uh, question for consideration, I'm going to just start to review, because this is background like I reviewed last week. We're going to do it again tonight. This is all background for understanding the conquest and settlement period. It's a very misunderstood section of the Bible. You will hear critic after critic after critic attack biblical Christianity because of the cruelty of God in the Old Testament. And when they say those words, the cruelty of God in the Old Testament, I will lay you nine to one odds that they're talking about the conquest and settlement. So that's why this is as controversial a section of the Bible as creation is. And like that, it involves misunderstandings of the framework. And that's why we have to keep going back and back and review and review and review these basic truths until they just won't depart from us. Just repetition and repetition. We have to have this repetitive teaching. Um, Down through history, the church remembered this. Why do we have things like the Apostles' Creed that nobody bothers with anymore? Um, The Apostles' Creed was a way of repeating truths that had to be repeated. And real training for this kind of uh, activity in life is always a repetitive thing because you never learn it the first time around, never learn it the second time around. Usually we don't half learn it when we get in a jam and then we waddle on through the, that mess and then we walk on and we get into another one. And usually after the 108th time around, we finally learn a little bit about what's happening. That's what we, we are. That's why the God calls us sheep. So that's why we want to just review a little bit and looking at this question, I like to kind of throw it up for discussion for a few minutes and then we'll get into the the lesson proper. What are the essential differences between the Bible and paganism regarding evil, suffering, and death? And just what are some of the elements that we want to be sure we understand or if we get into a discussion, a soliloquy in our own soul over this issue? We have to remind ourselves. I mean, you know, we're made of flesh and apart from the regenerate spirit and the indwelling Holy Spirit, um, we would be pretty good pagans ourselves. So it's a struggle that starts in our own hearts and it's a struggle that mushrooms out into our environment, our families, our communities, classes, working place, and so forth. So let's just take a, a minute or two and think through what are the essential differences between the Bible and paganism whenever these issues come up. Because these issues come up again and again and again and again. And we could cite hundreds of passages of Scripture and one way is to memorize a verse here and a verse there. 
And that, that certainly is important because the Holy Spirit uses memorized scripture in the heart. But it's also important to think through the big picture of where everything is coming from. Paganism and the scriptures are two completely different viewpoints. And they differ in a thousand ways, but at the core, there are certain essentials. And that's what we're trying to concentrate, just on the core differences that, we, that are the cutting edge between faith and unbelief. All right, let's, anybody would like to throw out something on, uh, on an element? Now, I'm not asking you to explain the whole issue, but just pieces of truths that we've learned about that come to mind as, as you consider a question like that. Yes, Paula. Okay. Okay, well, she basically answered the whole question. Um, Paula's point was that the thing to remember in all of this is that only, and this is a remarkable, this is remarkable, and yet very few people, it ever, it ever clicks with people, but the remarkable thing is that apart from the Bible, evil has no boundaries. It is only in the Bible, only in the Bible, that evil is bounded. Now think about that. It's remarkable. Evil, suffering, and death has a beginning in Scripture different from creation. If it, if it had it at creation, then we'd have a problem. And we go back to this diagram that we show again and again. It's this period right here. That's what makes Christianity and the Bible revolutionary. That period of time between the time of creation and the origin of evil does not exist in any other group, any other thought system, anywhere else. And it's so terribly important because it shows that the physical universe that we live in could exist without death. That it could exist without sorrow, misery, and suffering. It is not part and parcel of life to, to be involved in evil, suffering, and death. That is an abnormality. So, like Paula said, it's bracketed on this end because evil has a distinct beginning from the creature rebelling against a prior order that was there before the creature rebelled. And then it has an end in the sense that good and evil are separated. Okay? And they will be eternally separated. And it's that separation that forms the background for things like the conquest and settlement. It's that separation that's the hard stuff that's involved ultimately in the cross of Jesus Christ. And the question and the dilemma is, how do you separate evil from evildoers? That's the dilemma. How do you destroy evil without destroying evildoers? Because the way of salvation given in Scripture is God's solution to that problem by having us trust in a righteousness not of ourselves, but external to ourselves, that is in Christ. And having Christ as a genuine creature who walked the face of the earth as a full human being as well as God, who therefore lived, as it were, in that zone. Think of it. In Christ in his life was perfect. And he is the only man since Adam who was able to live his life inside that zone. So Jesus was unique. He did live and breathe the same air we breathed, walked the same planet Earth that we walk, talked human language, and faced temptations, but always remained in that bracket zone. He remained outside of the evil. And the only time that Christ ever came into personal contact with evil was during those dark hours on the cross. And then he came in contact with all of it. So the life of Christ in the four Gospels is a remarkable story. And it's, it's, we have to be careful that we, you know, we get so used to pieces of that story that it becomes so familiar that we don't see the power and the uh, uniqueness of, and appreciate it. Familiarity breeds contempt. And we have to be careful as Christians we don't begin to have a subtle religious contempt for the depth of the truths of Scripture. So... Evil is bounded here, and it's going to be separated here. 
you go down to the idea where the, there is no God who is creator, but just an impersonal continuum, and now you have this. And of course, without getting into any more discussion, uh, what are the two words that you notice in parentheses on those two views? Those are two words to be important. You want to remember them and always put them as sort of labels and tags on the two views that abnormal and normal. And when you get called to a bedside of a loved one who's dying, uh, and you look at them and you see the horror of death, the word abnormal should spring into your heart. This is abnormal. Because the evil one, at that point in your life, when you see that kind of suffering, particularly if it's a family member and close to you and a loved friend, the evil one will immediately slip the thought in, God is unfair to allow this. How dare God permit the death of this child? Or how dare God permit the death of this or that or this or that? Or this suffering person and blah, blah, blah. And you can add anything you want to. How dare God permit it? Excuse me, but how did it start? We've got to keep coming back. How did it start? When you see somebody dying, ask yourself, where did that process get started? Was it there when the finger universe left God's fingertips? Is that what God said in the sixth day or the seventh day? That all is good? Very good? No. That wasn't there then. So how did it get there? And if you'll just do that mental exercise, that's how you deal with the shock of evil. I'll bet you there's not, nine, there's not nine Christians out of ten that go through that process. And I have met bitter believers that have stayed bitter for years because of suffering in their families because of this thing. And they bought hook, line, and sinker, the satanic line. And it's all because the truth is not clear in their heart. So, this is not just a frivolous, theoretical picture up on the thing here. This is a, a root thing that goes back to a basic essential. Now, what we've done as we get into this uh, conquest and settlement period, we're still going through this element here. We've gone through the Exodus, the salvation of the nation of Israel, Mount Sinai, the giving of the law to the nation of Israel, and now this, this uh, celebrated and controversial period of time of the conquest. We dealt with the issue of holy war. We started out, and if you look on your notes tonight on the handout um, on page 85, uh, if you go there, there's a summary of all of these uh, sort of snapshots that I picked out from this entire period of time. Remember, the period of time we're looking at is several centuries. It starts with Moses, 1440 BC. This is when the Exodus happened. And um, I can get this down here a little bit. So it goes from 1440 BC on a timeline um, all the way to say about oh, let's just throw in 1100 BC. And so you have uh, up to the time say of Samuel. So you have the biblical books of Deuteronomy, uh, Numbers. Leviticus, written in this period of time. Of course, Exodus also, obviously. And then you have the book of Joshua and the book of Judges. And so that's the period of Scripture now that we're talking about in the Old Testament. And we, we're going to pick out little, little events along the way. And the first event we picked out, remember, right there in the timeline, was what was going on at the foot of Mount Sinai when God gave the law. They were busy already involving themselves in idolatry. And so if you look on the chart, you'll see there was a lesson that came out of that little snapshot. And that was the necessity of a circumcised heart. Not just physical circumcision, but a circumcised heart. And that goes back to the truth that we studied back when we went into the Mosaic Law, that what was the difference, we said, between the Law of Moses and the Law of Hammurabi? Or the Law of Moses and the Egyptian laws? or the law of Moses and any other law that you wanted to create. Remember what we said the difference was? The feature that you notice when you read through the biblical law code versus what you see 
when you read through the other surrounding nations, the Gentile law codes. They all dealt with crime. That was not the difference. What was the difference? May remember? The Mosaic Law addressed the heart. You don't read in the Code of Hammurabi that thou shalt worship the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul. That's not in there. That's not in our modern American law codes. That's a feature. And when we read the Bible, we want to remember the trick, uh, I hope some of you are learning as we've gone through these Thursday night classes week after week, if you've noticed the technique that I've used, I've used this over and over and over. What's my technique? I keep reading the Bible against the culture. I always set the two in opposition. Don't just read the Bible. Read the Bible and ask yourself, how is this different from the world? And if you'll keep asking yourself those questions, it will lead you to see what these differences are. And then suddenly things begin to click. Oh, okay. So it's just a technique to remember. So the law is addressed to the heart. And so therefore, obviously, one of the first lessons we learn in this period is that if the, if it, if the obedience doesn't come out of the heart, forget it. And the natural heart can't obey anyway. And so we found out in that section of Scripture that the people rebelled even while they were being told what to do. And during that period of time, the only thing that really saved them was the fact that Moses undertook a Christ-like ministry of making intercession for them. Because God offered a deal. He offered a deal to Moses. I'll blow away the nation, we'll start all over. You don't like these people. Look at them. They're having a party down there while you're up here with me. So why don't we just blow them away? Easy. God, take about half a second and you could take care of a few million people right there at the base of Sinai. No problem. But what did Moses do? Moses went back in the most masterful intercessory prayer, one of the greatest prayers in all of the scriptures, an intercessory prayer on behalf of the people. And that prayer, of course, designed, engineered, and administered through the Holy Spirit's work in Moses' life actually becomes a revelation of what Jesus Christ does for us. So, so those are the kind of things we learned out of that. Then we went to the next one, and we said the next event was the Declaration of Holy War. And we want to review something again in that. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 20, all this will... You'll see the application of the Christian life in, in, in a week or so, but I want to just first make sure we all are familiar with these texts. Some of you are older Christians. You've read these things before. This is not new. But uh, we want to just dwell on some of the details. In verse 16 of Deuteronomy 20. Prior to verse 16, up to 13, 14, and 15, those verses, those are the rules of engagement for cities outside the land. But in verse 16, it says, Only in the cities of these people that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. Now just look at that sentence again, verse 16. You will not leave alive anything that breathes. You will destroy completely the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you, in order that they might not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. Now notice why in verse 18. That goes back to this diagram that we started the class with tonight. Good and evil have got to be separated. And God is going to separate it. And it may be very messy while he's doing the separating, but they will be separated. And so this holy war is a revelation of what that separating process looks like. It's a piece, it's a chunk, it's a mini example of what it's going to look like when Jesus Christ returns. It's not going to be very pretty when he returns because he will, by force, take over the entire planet Earth. By force. There will be no negotiations. There will be no peaceful coexistence. There will be no negotiations between the God of this world and the God from heaven. There will be an utter, total, holy war. 
and that's necessary. If that doesn't occur, then, we, then evil has no solution in the biblical term. So what I want you to see, and we'll repeat this and repeat this and repeat this, because later, when we come to this business of living the Christian life and sanctification, I don't want you to, at that point, conclude, as we do so often in some of our Christian literature, that sanctification is just a, a social adjustment problem. It's just living a moral life or something. It's a lot bigger than that. There's cosmic issues here. The whole question of evil is wrapped up with sanctification in the Christian life. If we're wrong, if, if it's not true that good and evil have to be separated, then there's no hope. See, this is what's so hard to grasp. If good and evil aren't going to be separated, then they're never going to be separated. Well, if they're never going to be separated, then evil's going to continue to exist. So the very fact that we have hope means we have pain. Because the hope says that we've got to get rid of the evil, but getting rid of the evil is painful. But then you have to choose then. Do we get rid of the pain, go through pain to get rid of the evil and have peace ultimately? Or do we put it off? Do we put off getting rid of it? And as long as we put off getting rid of it, what happens? We perpetuate it. And we continue to live in it, live in it, postpone it, postpone it, postpone it, postpone it, postpone it. And so that's what this is all about, holy war. And that's why he says, I want you, in verse 17, to utterly destroy them. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite. Now here's a question that maybe somebody here has already thought about. And I'm surprised somebody didn't ask the question yet. Written inside here, occurring in that general portion of the Bible between Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Leviticus, uh, Joshua and Judges, in, in this period, there's another book that was written in the time about something that seems utterly unrelated to holy war. Does anybody know the name of the book? Written during the period of the Judges. Four-letter word. Written, named for a female. Ruth. Okay? Now, what do you suppose, just from what we've said now, why do you think the Holy Spirit included the book of Ruth in the middle of this bloody, messy period of war? Ruth was a Gentile. What do you think the argument of the book of Ruth is? Compare, look carefully at verse 17. I will destroy the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. And by the way, there's another woman who was involved in this period of time, mentioned prominently in Scripture. Rahab. Was she included physically and genealogically in the peoples to be destroyed? What's that? Okay, they're aliens living with Israel, but their origin, their origin was of the people that are damned in here. Now, this is a remarkable thing that most people see. This is what happens when you read little pieces of the Scripture and you don't put it together. There's a reason why the book of Ruth is included in the canon of the Old Testament Scripture. It's to balance out understanding. Why do you think any balancing needs to be? Again, look at verse 17. What could you conclude from verse 17 that is corrected if you think about the book of Ruth and Rahab? Yes. Yes. Okay. The point here is that Ruth and Rahab believe. And once they believed, they are judicially removed from the sentence and doom of verse 17. Because verse 17 was put upon a peoples who have hardened their hearts, and the damnation comes because of the hardness of their hearts. But these two women are examples of individuals in damned cultures who took the same basic information that their neighbors had and responded to it. So what do these two women's lives become arguments against? What is an, if, we didn't have Ruth, if we didn't have Ruth and we didn't have the Rahab examples, 
what attack could we get criticized for? Well, if you think about it as, as an unbeliever now, how could you construct an argument to, get, to dig back at the scriptures? Exactly. God would have been unfair because he just arbitrarily, without giving anybody a chance, he condemned them to damnation. But the balance is, what do you do then about Ruth and Rahab? They grew up in that culture. Their lives become a counter-argument for the fact that, look, if these gals did it, anybody can do it. Look at the environment of Rahab. Look at what kind of business she's been in for generations. And yet, this woman, this Rahab, has an amazing story. Anybody, we haven't got time to get into her story, but the point is, does anybody remember what, she, what words she said to the spies that came to the, the brothel for some information? What did she let them know as these, these spies were milling around, kind of listening at the bar and let's go forth. That's the place where you get information. So they're kind of sitting there listening to what's going on. And what did they pick up? What did Rahab spill the beans about the mentality of the culture of the people of verse 17. What did she say? And she knew the culture, believe me. She had lots of customers. So she knew all the guys were talking. She knew the play, what was going on. And what did she tell them? Anybody remember? What she revealed about the way the Canaanites were thinking and had been thinking? Because it was in Joshua's day they sent the people in. Anybody remember? She said, for years, we've, we've quaked in our boots since we heard what your God did to the superpower of Egypt. We have been sitting here terrified of you people. What were the Jews doing all during that period? We studied it in the third event. They were afraid to go into the land. The people in the land are afraid they're going to come in. Isn't it interesting? So here you have the revelation by a woman who very well knew what was going on. They got the real scoop from Rahab. The real stuff. She knew what she was talking about. And what she becomes is a massive intelligence source for Joshua. Joshua suddenly realized that God had already psychologically defeated these people. These people had been defeated for an entire generation. They could have gone in 20, 30 years ago. But it was there, they got psyched out by the fact that there's, there's struggle in the Christian life. And because there's a struggle in the Christian life, I'm going to phase out. When in fact, the powers and principalities are terrified because Jesus Christ has died and has risen again. They know that. They know it better than Rahab knew about the Canaanites. The principalities and powers know that Jesus left this planet in his physical body, in a resurrected body, and now sits far above them on the high ground. They know that, and they know it better than any one of us tonight. But they would have us believe, through their insidious whisperings into our hearts, that we're the defeated ones. That we have to fear them because they control history. That our God is remote and not concerned with us. He doesn't care for us in our daily living. By all, but all the while, they're whispering those ideas into our hearts. They know what's going on up there. So this is a picture of a larger cosmic scheme. This is why this period of the conquest is so dramatically important for your mental attitude in the Christian life and our mental attitude of just renewing our minds. It gives us vivid pictures, easy to remember. Children can remember these pictures. Don't have to remember tomes of theology. You just have to get your handle on three or four of these biblical stories and just imagine it in your mind. Go through it. Read the scriptures. Just soak in a couple of these things and you'll find this tremendous strength comes out of this because it grounds you in life. Yes? Yes. 
And that fear of the Lord that is there is a word that means respect for His authority. Remember we talked about the Lordship in Mount Sinai? It's respect for His authority. And you see, in a perverted way, that's what's wrong happening in our own culture, if we may digress for a moment, that's what's so seriously at wrong in our own culture. What's so seriously at wrong now is that the homes are so eroded and so weak that we have had an entire generation, basically, with many fine exceptions, but by and large, a generation arise in our society that has no clue as to what authority and respect mean. Not a clue. Then the sad thing is that in the end, who runs the universe? God does. And in the final analysis, remember that passage in Philippians? We read it's kind of a nice Christian passage, but it's kind of powerful and overwhelming when it says, how many knees shall bow to Jesus Christ? Every knee shall bow. In heaven and where else? And in hell. The ones in hell have to be broken, but they will bow. So in the final analysis, everybody's going to learn about authority. The only issue is how you're going to learn it. You're going to learn it voluntarily, in a benign environment, or you're going to do it in a nasty way where you get your brains blown out, like I remember a, a, a boy grow up in our city where I had, we, Carol and I used to live, and he had a father who was a lawyer, and he thought it was cute to go out here and get speeding tickets and so on, because his dad was a lawyer, and his always got him off. So he learned something from his father. father thought he was being good to his son, of course, doing all this stuff for him. And what he was doing, really, was training his kid that you can do anything you want, son, and you never experience consequences. So you know what happened one day? He liked to race. So he was on his motorcycle, he was racing down one of the main streets. Somebody made a left turn in front of him. And after he scraped himself off the side of the car and disemboweled himself in the street. So did he learn about consequences in speeding? Yeah, he learned. Too bad he had to learn that way, but he learned. So that's what I'm saying. That we either learn it nicely or we learn it in a nasty way. But if the universe is what it is, and God of the Bible is the one who is the creator, then we all are going to learn about authority. And the tragedy is, the older you are in life, before you learn it, the more painful it becomes. That's why it's easy to learn, like learning language. It's a lot easier to learn language when you're a little kid. That's why missionary kids learn languages of tribes. You know, mom and dad are sitting there at tape recorders and all kinds of linguistic techniques trying to figure out how do I say so-and-so in Spanish. And then the little kid, he's out there playing ball with them in Spanish because he learns. Children are pliable. They can learn. It becomes more difficult. So this is why in verse 18, what is God saying about people who inherently disobey his authority? They're going to teach other people. It just, this is a cancer, it just spreads around. Okay, I think we've made a big enough point about this, that what we're seeing in this event of Holy War, the Kadesh Barnea event, these are all events on this line. Now tonight, we want to move on, on, your, on page um, 81. I think most of us have heard about Jericho. But there's something about the Jericho passage that I want to show you. Uh, Joshua, if you move on now, beyond Deuteronomy, to Joshua. And Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. A little background uh, from a military point of view, what's going on here. I was going to bring some slides tonight and I didn't get myself organized, so I'll try to bring them next week. If you, you have a map of Israel there, and I can't draw maps very well, but um, here's the Sea of Galilee, here's the Dead Sea, here's the Mediterranean. Uh, they were going to come up in an in a attack from the south. By the time of Joshua, they, they fiddled around down here for 40 years trying to figure out what it is they were trying to do. And then they came in this way. Now, in military warfare, there's several principles that have to be followed for victory. 
One of them is you have to command the high ground. Every, you know, we, we're right near Gettysburg here. Gettysburg was fought over who has the high ground because you can shoot down. So in Israel, there's, a, there's mountains that run down like this. That's the high ground in Israel. Whoever controls the high ground controls the land. This is, by the way, why Israel doesn't want to... is putting settlements in the eastern part of the land. Because the Israeli army, for years, has always had to fight off the low ground. And they've taken casualties trying to fight up. You go to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv, your airplane lands at David Ben-Gurion Airport, and you take a bus up the road to, to Jerusalem, and you suddenly realize, by the way, when you're on the bus, why it says going up to Jerusalem because you go up to the high ground of Jerusalem. And along the wayside, you'll see plaque after plaque after plaque of Jewish boys that died in 1948 fighting their way up that road. Didn't have tanks. So how they had to fight in 1948, because nobody, Jews didn't have tanks, so they used to take armor plate and weld it onto school buses. And they shot out the windows of the school buses and tried to get up to Jerusalem. And many of them died along that road. And there's monuments to this day Complete with their names, the age, 19, 22, 16, the soldiers that died on that road to get to the high ground. So Joshua now is coming in from the east and he's got to capture the high ground. You follow the campaigns in the Bible. He is, his plan is to secure high ground just uh, uh, west of this entry point. And then he's going to move north and he's going to move south along the high ground. Classic military tactic. And by the way, application spiritually. Where is Jesus Christ in his resurrection body? Relative to Satan. He's on the high ground. Okay, the gateway to the high ground across this valley was guarded by a city called Jericho. That was the fortress. That was the gate. So that gate had to be breached in order to get the army onto the high ground. So that's the whole issue behind this thing. So Joshua knows that, and he's getting his soldiers to come up to that point. Now in verse 13, we have a strange conversation. Let's look at verse 13 14. You look at that and read it, and see what you think. What's, what's going on here? Why in the middle of this invasion of the high ground and at this fortress city do we have the conversation that goes on? Why is that conversation the way it is? It came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And the man said, No, rather I indeed now come as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Who is that? That's the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. There's an Old Testament theophany of the angel of Jehovah who shows up often as a man but what's, what's striking about the conversation? First of all, notice verse 13. Joshua challenged. I mean, he's like a sentry on duty. And he sees, he's got his soldiers over here, and he sees somebody over here, and he challenges the authority. There's only two people in this. There's two principles at war. Whose side are you on? The question we want to play with tonight in our heads a little bit is why did Jesus answer Joshua the way he did? Can you think of why he said that? He, he should have said, well, I'm on your side. Why did Jesus instead, in verse 14, say that I come as the captain of the host of the Lord? He does not answer the interrogation question of Joshua. Now, Joshua is the commander. He is the captain of the armies of the Lord. In fact, it's interesting, I was noticing on the Israeli soldiers' uniforms uh, when I was there years ago, um, I forgot the initials in English. I think it's, um, well, in English it's IDF. But in Hebrew, they have the Hebrew letters that are translated IDF, like we have USAF and USA, you know, US Army. 
they have IDF, uh, and it's the defense forces. Israel's defense forces is basically what it means. But in Hebrew, that's not what it says. In Hebrew, it says, uh, the hosts of the land of Israel. That's the very same Hebrew word. See, the word hosts, it means ranking. It means military groups. So, don't think of hosts as... You remember, in, in, for example, in, we get too religiously confined when we hear a host because we usually think of the hosts of the Lord and the angels of the Lord and that kind of thing. But actually, the word host is a military term and it means a group, regiment, divisions. And this is why the angels are said to be in hosts because the angels apparently have military rank and they're organized into or, sub-organizations with ranking structures. In it. Well, can anybody throw out a guess? What is going on in verse 13 and 14? Why that particular conversation? How do we explain that funny response that Joshua gets? Yeah, Warren. Yes. Exactly. The question in verse 13, if the Lord... Remember we said back when we started this thing, don't answer loaded questions. You know, like how many times last week did you beat your wife? Um, no matter how you answer it, you've incriminated yourself because you've already bought into the structure behind the question. There are some questions we ought not to answer. We redefine the question, and then we answer the redefined question. That's what's so wrong a lot of the public school examinations, by the way, where they force Christian kids to answer some stupid question that's already loaded against the Christian position. Well, here, imagine in verse 13. Are you for us? Are you for them? And Jesus, I'm for you. Now, who's in authority? Joshua is issue then, the immediately in verse 14 becomes who is outranking who in this issue. And so, in verse 14, what Jesus Christ's pre-incarnate form says is that I have the rank over the armies of Israel. You serve me. So, I don't answer to your interrogation. You know, you're a nice guy, good general, all that, Joshua. But I don't answer to you. You answer to me. So isn't it striking that as this war begins, one of the fundamental points that is made right in the text, because we haven't even got to the Battle of Jericho yet, but what question is solved right up front? Who is in authority around here? And it's Jesus Christ who is in authority, not Joshua. Now, after that grand question is settled, then we go into the tactics. And then he gives Joshua the most bizarre set of instructions that an army has ever seen. And you know the story of running around Jericho. But what we want to look at is in Joshua chapter 6, verse 16. I want you to look at a verb tense. When you study the Bible, one of the things that you want to always ask yourself, is the tense of the main verb? Is it past, present, or future? Now look at that verb in verse 16. It came to pass the seventh time they walked around Jericho. When the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for Jehovah or Yahweh has given you the city. What tense verb is used? Past tense. Has they been given the city yet? Well, not historically, not temporally. But the reason why that verb is past tense is because in the mind of God, it's been done. So it's just a mopping up operation from here on out. The main thing has been done. I've given it to you. And Joshua recognizes that. Because, see, he's submissive to the authority and, and, you, and, and the whole thing just unravels on, on the uh, Jericho people. All because, it, from starting from the commander-in-chief in verse 14, there is a submission to the authority of Jesus Christ. And then the whole thing just ripples down through. So, we learn out of that something that's very interesting. God gave a test right at this point, because this is their first battle. They're going to have many battles along this high ground 
We'll study some of them in next week. But this is the first battle they face in this generation. Remember the other battles were way down here, and that was when Moses was living and Joshua was a young man. Now Moses is dead. Joshua is an older man. Joshua is now in charge, and this is his first battle. So it's very important that these believers understand what it is to do spiritual warfare in such a dramatic way that the lessons picked up, there won't be bad habits picked up. See, when you get victory in war, sometimes you learn the wrong lesson. And I'm afraid, and a lot of people are afraid, that we in America have learned the wrong lesson from our last engagement in the desert. In Desert Storm, it, was, it wasn't even a contest. It was such a clear, overwhelming victory. But the sad thing most people don't realize is everything was perfect. We have never had a case that somebody was so stupid as to try to start a war and give us six months training time right in the environment, untouching us. So we could do all the training we needed. For six months, guys could do nothing but drill, 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 drill. Practice airplane runs, practice tank runs. Do this, practice, 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 until they were so tired of practicing, they wanted the war to get over with it. And then we lived in a desert environment, and the electro-optical smart weapons were great in a desert environment. They don't work great in a European environment with clouds, smoke, and rain. So everything was worked fine, and we can get a very arrogant attitude. Oh, we could do that again. No, we can't. Now we don't even have an army left. We are the, now the tenth largest army in, a, in the world. Ten other nations have armies larger at this point than the United States does. So that's where we've come since those days. So you can learn the wrong lesson. So God doesn't want them to learn the long lesson. So now, at Jericho, He gives them a lesson in military tactics that He wants them to carry up here. So regardless of what the strategies are, whatever the weapons are, on down through this high ground campaign to the north and high ground campaign to the south, and they're going to have different battles, but He wants them to remember something up here. Because this is where the battle stops. This is... Now, we've got a gun, we practice, bang, and it works, and the guy drops dead. We did it. And so, there's a subtle thing that begins to happen. Oh, cause effect. It's just pushing buttons. No problem. I don't rely on the God to push buttons. So, we get so enamored with ordinary cause effect that it masks our dependency on the Lord. So, from time to time, God asks us to do some stupid things. And this is what's so scary, because sometimes in the Christian life he does. He asks you to do stupid things. And, but if I do this, it won't cause that. Just do this. But, 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 but it won't do that. But just do this. And so what he has them do is this inane walking around the city. Now, I tell you, you imagine what the army, if you were a dramatist, you could have a ball with some, you know, video showing these guys on the walls of Jericho and, you know, oh, look at these clowns. Look at those clowns out there. And watch them do this, this ceremony. Except on the seventh time, they weren't laughing. So the lesson, down at the bottom, page 81, and this is where I, I point out that so many of the classic Christian devotional writers go back to this strange section of the Bible, this Old Testament period of the conquest for their spiritual lessons, the Christian life. Thomas Scott, this is an old, old writer, very classical. When the Lord effects His purposes by such means and instruments as we deem adequate, our views are apt to terminate upon them and to overlook Him who works all things after the counsel of His own will. To obviate this propensity, the Lord sometimes deviates from the common track and works by methods or instruments which in themselves appear not at all suited to produce the intended effect, nay, sometimes have no real connection with it. So I think we can see that at this point, God has taught their army a lesson. Now we come to the next event. And the next event is their defeat at Ai. If you turn page 82 in the notes, we'll go through some of the highlights of that. Because next time we want to get into the longest day at Ayalon and the other events. They learned a lesson or did they? <laughs> the book of Joshua has a structure to it. 
I give you that structure in the, la- the next to last paragraph on page 82. And uh, again, if we were teaching Joshua verse by verse, you'd see the structure. We, we can't do it now. Notice the three steps. Or actually, two steps. Three steps. Yahweh said, and I give you a whole bunch of verses. See those? In other words, every time a major event happens in the book of Joshua, it has this form to it. Yahweh says, then the second thing is, and Joshua did. Notice the verses I give you. Yahweh said, chapter 3, verses 7 to 8. Then point 2, Joshua did, chapter 3, 9 through 11. Go back to 1. Yahweh said, chapter 4, 15 through 16. And second element, Joshua did, chapter 4, verses 4 to 7, 17 to 18. See what I'm doing there? I'm just showing you that every event has this form to it. Yahweh said, Joshua did, and the people did. Now, the author is is the Holy Spirit. And when he writes Scripture this way, he intends it to teach us something. He's teaching us a pattern of how he worked. God said, Joshua did, and the people did. What is interesting, if you do a vocabulary search, you'll notice that in chapter 7, the pattern is broken. Yahweh doesn't say, Joshua doesn't do, and the armies are defeated. The very grammar of chapter 7 in the book of Joshua doesn't follow the grammar of the other chapters. And that tells us there's something terribly wrong at Ai. Ai is one of the cities up at this high ground. Here's Ai, west of Jericho. So, it was important that they conquer Ai. Now, we all know what happened. There was a man who had taken um, the sin of Achan, had taken booty. Now, they weren't supposed to take booty. Why, by the way, do you suppose armies classically took booty? By the way, the United States at least can go down in history as the fact that when we conquered peoples, we did not rape them of all their resources. We gave it back to them tenfold. At least we can have that as a pleasant picture, and we can be proud of that as Americans. But why, historically, do you suppose armies took booty? Pay their soldiers. Had to have income. War costs money. So they had to be pay their soldiers. They had to have food. Uh, They had to make up for losses, personnel losses. I mean, they had to have, there was some money here we had to have. But what does that imply? If the Hebrew army marches into this land and acts like a pagan army and takes booty, what are they confessing? What would that policy show? That God doesn't supply their need. Exactly. See the spiritual lessons in all this? I mean, this, it's, that's why the heathen that read this section of Scripture and they get all bent out of shape because all they see is the battle. They haven't got the spiritual eyes to see the details of what's going on here in the text. So, the idea of going to the booty isn't just theft. That's that's trivial. It's not a theft issue. It's a faith issue. The guys aren't trusting the Lord to supply their need. We've got to get some extra goodies here while we're at it. And God says, no, no, you're not going to get any goodies. I allow you to get goodies. You're going to start the next thing. The next battle we go into, half the army's going to be looting. And then after that, you've learned a lesson that I don't supply your need. You can supply your own need. And when you get to that, you've already compromised your whole spiritual life. So I'm not going to let you do that. So this is why we have the lesson of AI. And this is why in, in the, last chap, the last paragraph there on page 82, the next to last paragraph... The pattern is missing in 7, 1 to 5. Clearly, the Holy Spirit is warning us through the AI event that it matters more to God that we obey Him from the heart than we mind the externals. Without private obedience, public appearances are mere pseudo-obedience. God will not honor faking it with superficial and phony social righteousness while our hearts rebel against Him. That's the lesson at AI. And see, it's so easy because there's pressure... <clears throat> there's social pressure. We generate it ourselves. <clears throat> there's social pressure to behave certain ways. Not saying that that's wrong, but here we are going through life and there are other people out here watching. And we feel pressure. We feel pressure that we have to act certain ways. It's peer pressure. 
People learn that. I mean, everybody out of junior high knows that. Peer pressure. And the problem with it is, is that if we learn to respond to that as the motive, all we're doing is created a, a pseudo-identity outside here. We're projecting what we want people to be pleased with onto them. And we're not dealing with this. And that's what God wants to deal with. And so, the Christian life, in this sense, if we look at these Old Testament lessons, it's, it's in one sense, very relaxing. Because God wants us to be us. He knows all about our sin. He died for it, so He knows all about our crud. So there's no, no, there's no reason to be phony. You know, we don't have this, and we're going to cover this up. Uh, because He knows all about that. So we can be honest with Him. That doesn't mean spill our guts to everybody. But it does mean that the Bible places the emphasis upon our relationship with Him. And what other people think, well, let them think what they want to think. But that's the issue there. And AI, they went through all the motions, had the army in place, went through all the military tactics, but what did they forget? What God said to their heart. And they paid a price, and they were defeated. Next week, we're going to deal with the day at Ilon, and we're going to come to the, if you want to read ahead, that's going to be Joshua 9 and 10. And then I want you to skip from Joshua 9 and 10 and go to the book of Judges, chapter 1 and 2, if you would. So those are the sections, if you'll uh, look at those passages for next time. And then after that, we'll get to the, how this all ties together in a coherent picture for sanctification of the Christian life. Father, thank you for preserving this bit of history. We thank you for the many believers who participated in these great events, who saw them. We thank you for how you appeared to Joshua and why and how you preserved all of this down through the centuries in this great witness to who you are. We ask that your Holy Spirit make this meaningful to each one of our hearts. In his name, amen. It is today, like he works today. And the answer is no. And there's a, I, I was trying to answer uh, Glenn's question, and I can't remember the verse. It's in the Gospel of John. But Jesus made a very clear uh, verse one day when he, this question came up about the Holy Spirit. It's probably somewhere in John 14, because that's when he was expounding the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. He said, He has been with you, but now he will be in you. And he uses two distinct prepositions. So prior to Pentecost, the Holy Spirit had a kind of ministry. After Pentecost, entirely different. And that's why we get into this question that was raised by another fellow here back two weeks ago. Remember, a guy raised his hand. I forgot his name. can't think of the guy's name. Um, and he raised the, the question, well, wait a minute. Aren't you ever going to get into dispensational distinctions? And you know, I saw a few people's eyes wonder, what is a dispensational distinction? Um, and I said, we get to that sometime. But this is the kind of thing that's involved in those dispensational distinctions, that God has certain ways he works in different ages of history. And right now we're looking at how he works politically in a theocracy with Israel. He doesn't work that way in the church. In the church, it's a different story. And the reason is because the church is not a theocracy. The church is independent believers in many nations, in many national cultures. Israel was all one culture. So there are differences. There were certain laws, civil laws that had to be followed. God doesn't give civil laws to the church. What he gives us is wisdom so that hopefully if we have any influence socially, we can reconstruct our society somewhat after the pattern of Scripture. But God doesn't, for example, have a covenant with the United States. He had a covenant with Israel. But he's not in contract with the United States. And I'll tell you one verse that we are fond of quoting and we really quote it out of context. you ever hear... Preachers, and uh, we said it around here in the chapel, particularly in the fall elections, will say, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and be obedient and so forth. Well, if you look in context, that's not talking to the church. Now, the principle, I understand, is praying for your country, and that's in 1 Timothy 3 and uh, 1 Timothy 2. And so the principle really isn't wrong. But that verse is not addressed to the United States of America. That is a verse, the people in that verse refers to the nation Israel, and in the context of that verse, it's talking about the contractual obligations of the cursings and the blessings in the Deuteronomic Code. So that's the context of that. Uh, another example of that, Jesus in the Lord's Prayer says, 
uh, we shall pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we glibly refer to that and so on. And, 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 the, and it's, But remember, the church didn't exist when Jesus prayed that prayer. And the kingdom, if, if we were believers, Jewish believers, and we were sitting here and he said something like that, you know what would come to our heads? Not the church. When he said, the kingdom, thy will be done on earth as in heaven, we would think of the literal, political, millennial kingdom coming to pass. Because we wouldn't know anything else. That's the word kingdom to us as Jews living at that time period. So, thy kingdom come in the Lord's Prayer is a prayer to accelerate the force of history to get to this period when good will be separated from evil. We can pray that same principle. It's just that these nuances to these things. And to get back to Glenn's question, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament worked in ways different than he does in the New Testament. Some ways that he worked differently are physical. The Holy Spirit worked with carpenters, believe it or not. The same words that the Spirit came upon so-and-so, you look at when they were building the ark, it says the Holy Spirit came upon the carpenters and they, they sawed the wood and hammered the nails. Now, wait a minute. That's a funny ministry of the Holy Spirit. Was it? What were they building? They were building a sacred piece of furniture that had to be perfectly constructed to mirror the ministry of Jesus Christ. So yes, the Holy Spirit came upon those carpenters. So it just shows you the ramifications of what the Holy Spirit can do. He can get construction work done. He can do all kinds of things. But, but his ministries back then were, were different. Uh, another example, we haven't got time to do this, but an uh, exciting example in the book of Judges is his ministry with Samson. Samson is one of my favorite characters out of the Bible. I've never seen him portrayed correctly either. I've been so disappointed sometimes. I always picture him as some sort of playboy or um, um, the, the Swedish guy that's the bodybuilder, um, Schwarzenegger. Um, the scriptures don't tell us much what Samson looked like. But Samson's whole role in his life was to be a goon that started wars. Uh, it's very interesting. He was called to be a troublemaker. And the Holy Spirit worked in his life to make him a troublemaker. His, the point was that the Jews, in that part of the book of Judges, were amalgamating dangerously. They, they had settled down and began to peacefully coexist with the Philistines. They became passive to the Philistines. And even Samson, morally and spiritually, and this is the point I want to make about the ministry in Samson's life, the Holy Spirit's ministry in Samson's life was not on a high plane. I mean, Samson was not on a high spiritual plane, for sure. But the Holy Spirit's ministry in his life was, was in a different sense that that man had to do certain things in his life, whether he was spiritual or not. And that's hard for us because the Holy Spirit is so aligned in our heads in the way He works with us in the New Testament. His work is so embedded with us in our spiritual understanding. It's hard for us to conceive of Him working in, in a goon. In somebody that really the Holy Spirit's work isn't so much in His heart as it's through His body and through the circumstance, through the providences in His life. And this is why he, He's a rebel from the time He's a teenager. He goes tells His parents who He's going to marry. Explicit commandments in the scripture not to intermarry with the culture for good reasons. And he goes ahead and does it anyway. Parents don't like it. He, he could care less about his parents. He just does what he wants to. And that's his whole story of his life. I do what I want to. Including his very last moment. When he gets in that magnificent scene where he's had his eyes punched out and he's suddenly released and they're going to mock him. And so he has, to the very dying breath, he is going to do it his way and he will get vengeance upon them. But the Lord works through his own vengeance. Because remember, he gets in this temple of Dagon, and they're going to make fun of this Hebrew prophet. And he puts his arms around the pillars, and he says, God, let me get my revenge for my eyes. And he pulls down the thing and destroys himself and all of them and destroys their whole temple. Um, in other words, the Holy Spirit did work in his life then. The Holy Spirit was with Samson. But you can't argue from that that everything about his life was admirable and a work of the Holy Spirit like we think of a work of the Holy Spirit. That's the subtlety in Old Testament. So you've got to watch it when you see the Holy Spirit working in the Old Testament. 
Don't read the New Testament into those passages. Let those passages speak to you, to you yourself and just relax. Don't try to impose anything on them. Just learn. What is it the Holy Spirit's doing there? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Very much so. Even at the carpenter. The whole idea of that sacred piece of furniture, uh, the ark, was to bring honor to Jesus Christ. And historically, see, what has happened in the last 200 years of the church is that that's, that's one of the problems of the charismatic theology is that people's hearts have been yearning for a deeper relationship with the Lord. Unquestionable. And many believers who, have, who want to have a deeper relationship to the Lord are attracted to that. But what happens is that it becomes inward, it becomes subjective. It's how you feel. And somehow the work of the Spirit is always translated into an internal feeling. And that's not what you get in Scripture. But it gets this way. And then finally, what ultimately happens in many of these circles is that the manifestations of the Holy Spirit become things unto themselves. Well, the, the New Testament balance in the Trinity is always this way. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, um, one man taught me back when I was a young Christian, and I've always remembered this. If you can think of the God the Father as the planner, God the Son as the actor, and the Holy Spirit as the backstage technician. The backstage technician isn't interested in honoring Him. He wants to make the actors and actresses on stage look good. That's what he does. He handles the lights. He handles the curtains. He handles the sound effects. That's what he does. He's like Tommy back there. Uh, he, 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 he handles the background stuff to make, to make Christ look neat. And so that's the balance. So whenever you see thing, the thing to think to yourself is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in balance. And the balance you look for is that Christ always honors the Father, points to Him, but the Father Himself is not usually seen. It's the second personality, the Trinity, that's the center of our attention and occupation. Through Him, He points us to the Father. But the one who's behind us, pushing us and opening our eyes and opening our hearts, is the Holy Spirit. But He, he doesn't glorify Himself. He glorifies Christ. So it's a good question, good balance. And in the Old Testament, He did that. And Glenn, back to Glenn's question. He honored Christ by honoring the typology, the furniture, the practices, the sacrifices. That's all honoring what Christ wanted to have honored about himself in the Old Testament. So, okay, good discussion. See you next week.